Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. One of the things that we've really been trying to do with this podcast is to introduce you to members of the pro-life and pro-family movement who have been on the front lines for decades, really trying to push back against the massive cultural changes that have swept the West over the last five to six decades. And if you're a member of the pro-life movement, and I've been working full-time in the pro-life movement for nine years this year, you will have heard of Joe Scheidler, Joseph M. Scheidler, the National Director of the Pro-Life Action League, which is headquartered in Chicago. Uh, Joe is actually in his 90s now, but he's one of the longest-serving pro-life activists in the movement. He actually left a very successful career in public relations, just a few weeks after the Roe v. Wade judgment came down from the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973, and he founded the Pro-Life Action League with his wife Anne in 1980, which is eight years before I was born. That organization is now run by his son, Eric Scheidler, uh, who's a a phenomenal pro-life activist as well. But Joe still goes to work on behalf of unborn babies every single day. And in fact, he is actually known by the nickname, the godfather of pro-life direct action. Nobody's quite sure where that nickname comes from. But Joe Scheidler has pioneered nearly every kind of activism. He has retrieved aborted babies, the victims of abortion themselves, out of dumpsters, hundreds of them. At one point, he actually took these babies and put them on tables outside an abortion clinic, at the front of the abortion clinic, so people walking past the clinic would look upon the victims that were being killed just inside. He's done so many different kinds of activism that he actually wrote a book called a 90, Closed, 99 Ways to Stop Abortion in 1985, and it was updated again in 1993. Again, there's almost nothing that Joe Scheidler hasn't done in the pro-life movement, and for that, he's been a prime target of abortion activists. He was actually a chief defendant in a RICO lawsuit, a RICO lawsuit brought against him, the Pro-Life Action League, and several other pro-life activists by the National Organization for Women and several abortion clinics. The case was filed back in 1986, and he originally won in the lower courts, but the case was then sent back to federal court by the Supreme Court in January of 1994. And after a seven-week trial, Scheidler and other defendants were actually found guilty of racketeering. A pro-life activist was found guilty of racketeering by a six-member jury. And that finding was finally overturned by the Supreme Court in 2003. And it was that case that gave birth to the title of Joseph Scheidler's Phenomenal Memoirs, which I had the privilege of reading almost immediately when they came out. It's called Racketeer for Life, Fighting the Culture of Death from the Sidewalk to the Supreme Court. And so Joseph Scheidler, who I had the privilege of first meeting, I think it's seven years ago now, at a summit in Chicago, Uh, for pro-life activists who use abortion victim photography in public. He agreed to come on and to talk about his long life in pro-life activism. He talks about starting off marching on Selma with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and ending protesting abortion clinics, and that is something that he is still doing today. So with that, I present to you this conversation with pro-life veteran and the godfather of pro-life action, Joe Scheidler. Yeah, just to start off, uh, as I understand it from your book, and I've heard you say this in speeches, you were actually somewhat involved in the civil rights movement fighting segregation before you got involved in the in the pro-life movement. Yes, I was teaching in a Catholic uh, college here in Chicago, and um, they were calling for a march from Selma to Montgomery. 
to, um, you know, Martin Luther King and uh, a number of uh, Father Hesburgh from Notre Dame and so on. And so uh, there were a group of uh, students at Mundelein College that wanted to go down. So um, Anne, who turned out later to be my wife, got us all set up on a great big bus, and we drove down together to Montgomery. And we stayed at St. Jude Parish, where there was uh, there was a meeting place. It was a, a, an interesting parish. It had a wall around us. So it was almost like an encampment. We stayed in the gym there. And then I went out. The march was coming in from Selma. And I went out uh, on foot and joined the last mile or so of the march from Selma. I hadn't been in all the problems on the bridge and everything, but... I did march with them, and then I went on downtown and was accosted by some uh, Southerners who were uh, very, uh, you know, into uh, the Ku Klux Klan and so on. And I thought I was in real danger, except there was a fellow there from uh, Pennsylvania who had just moved in, and he knew there was going to be a lot of trouble. So he told the group to go back in, and he'd set them up at the bar. And so I walked back to the St. Jude compound and stayed there. But I did a march with Martin Luther King then the next day to the Capitol, and we heard his talks and things. And then I had a hard time getting back because all the street, the signs, road signs were all covered with brown paper. But uh, there, it was that night that uh, Viola Liuzzo was shot and killed on her way back to Selma. So there was a lot of tension at that time. And I, and I would, uh, you know, try to uh, work as much as I could with getting uh, voting rights and so on for um, for the blacks. So when did you get introduced to the pro-life movement side of things? Because in the 60s, abortion was just starting to become an issue on the state level in a bunch of different places like California and New York. But when did you become aware of abortion as another one of the great human rights issues and the human rights issue that would eventually define your life? Well, uh, uh, there was going to be a rally in the federal uh, plaza here in Chicago, and Henry Hyde, uh, a very uh, gallant congressman and very pro-life, um, found out that they were going to try to get abortion legalized in Illinois. And so he was against it and uh, was speaking against it. And my wife encouraged me to come down with my three uh, sons at that time to hear Henry Hyde's speech. And as we were approaching the plaza where he was speaking, somebody handed me the life and death pamphlet put out by Jack Wilk, Jack and uh, Wilk and his wife, and I was so touched by the picture on the back of the uh, babies in a plastic, black plastic bag, a uh, picture taken from a hospital in uh, Canada. Uh, they were so perfectly uh, formed and dead and killed through abortion. And actually, one of the little baby's faces looked like my son's baby picture. And so I became very, very, uh, I couldn't believe that they killed these babies uh, that were practically able to be born. And so I listened very carefully to Henry's talk, and then I started studying the whole pro-life issue, uh, fetal development and everything. This was in November of 1972. 
Well, then by 1973, January 22nd, when the Rui Wei decision came down, I read it thoroughly and found in Dovey Bolton that abortion was available for the full term of pregnancy if the woman had any health condition at all that she claimed would make it uh, better for her, even an emotional thing, and, or uh, she would have suicide if she didn't have the abortion. And so, on. so abortion was uh, obviously available for the full term of pregnancy. And this was so against everything that I believed about my country. You know, I'd been in World War II in the Navy, and I loved America, and I thought this is going to destroy our country because we are taking protection away from the, the, the most helpless, the unborn. And so I just went full-time. I quit my job as an account executive for a public relations firm here in Chicago and started doing pro-life work with the Illinois Right to Life Committee. And I tried to work with the church, but they suggested that since I was a more activist, I wanted to show the pictures to people and to give talks and show the slides and make people understand exactly what abortion was. I decided to go out on my own. I worked for a while with the Illinois Right to Life Committee, and then I started my own group, the Pro-Life Action League, in 1980. So what was this like for your... Yeah, I was just going to say, what was this like for your family at first? Yeah, when you shift from an advertising executive and then you jump out into the pro-life movement, which was still developing at the time, and then started your, your own organization. What was that period like? Well, it was it was hard on the kids a little bit because uh, abortion was misunderstood. It was the law of the land now. And uh, in I know my daughter, Sarah, said she wished she could have said her father was a dentist when they went around the classroom <laughs> and says, what does your father do? But my father goes out and pickets abortion clinics and has meetings for the other pro-lifers and so on. And it was very difficult for them, but they all be, uh, understood the value of life, and uh, they they saw the pictures early on, and uh, all of them have worked in the pro-life movement with me. My son Eric has taken over now the executive director uh, position, and my daughter Annie ran the Generations for Life for young people at college and high school campuses. And um, Sarah worked for me, and uh, Joey did the mailing, and all the way through, Peter helped me write the book, Racketeer for Life, and uh, uh, Matt's been very supportive and helpful and comes to our Face Truth tours. So the whole family is is glad that we're into this missionary work and that there has been quite a bit of success over the years. Abortions are down. And we have closed a number of clinics and converted some abortionists and talked a lot of women out of, we hope it's a lot of women, out of having abortions because we have some of them working for us. So it uh, it was tough on the kids and it was hard. There was no income. So I was living off of some stocks that my dad had given me. And then I started sending out mailings and uh, building up a, a financial base for continuing, and we've gone now uh, ever ever since 1980 when I founded Pro-Life Action League, but I've been at this now since uh, 1972, and it just seems to be that uh, it's it's my calling, and I've gotten to know some of the most wonderful people on the earth today all over the world who are fighting for to defend the unborn. 
so how did you end up with the the I, I would say nickname, but more a title of honor, the Godfather of of direct pro life action? You're kind of known as a founder of the sort of pro life activism that uh, we at the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform in Canada do, um, that groups right around the world do, and you kind of used your your marketing skills to help bring the reality of abortion home to people. So what were some of the things uh, that you did that really captured the public imagination and that led to you being given that title? Well, we went to the clinics. We went right where the abortions take place, and we talked to the women going in and tried very hard to persuade them not to have the abortion, and we would maybe go to a restaurant and talk about it and uh, the woman then would have something to eat, and she couldn't have an abortion anyway then. And uh, we we also uh, had to uh, face the truth. We would take these signs and blow them up real big to uh, like uh, four and a half, five feet high, and hold them along the, the uh, intersections of very busy uh, streets and highways. And we uh, put out a lot of literature, and we, we had always... I always used the picture because I thought it was absolutely critical that people see abortion. I'd always gone by um, the, the the old dictum that a picture is worth 10,000 words, meaning that uh, you see something, you, you can't deny it, whereas you can talk yourself out of it. So, and then I started finding other groups. I was surprised how many other groups were doing basically the same thing we were and so we would, I would start traveling around to their cities and join their protests, and we finally established what we called the Pro-Life Action Network. And then we would meet every year or two or, or twice a year in different cities and bring all the pro-life activists together and exchange ideas. And then I wrote a book on uh, 99 Ways to Stop Abortion. It's called Closed. And I would just use the ideas that we uh, used to the, the protests and um, talking with your legislators and um, supporting bills that would cut down on abortion and things like that, but also the activist work. And uh, that book went into a second printing, closed. It, it needs a third printing now because so many uh, the young pro-lifers have come along and done some of those things so well, so much better than we had done them, such as uh, Lila Rose with, uh, you know, posing as a, a teenager about to have an abortion and having uh, gotten pregnant by an older man, which is a, 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 against the law and the, the clinics don't report it. We also investigate the clinics. We find out that they're breaking health rules, that they don't have a hospital within a certain distance to take a patient, and we've been able to close a number of clinics that way. And just generally um, going ahead and doing these things and getting to know so many people in the pro-life movement that uh, some of them, as I say, asked me to write a book on methods of stopping abortion, and closed was that book. And then we've made a number of films, and then we would have uh, meetings with the former abortionists, uh, with uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson. I got to know him real well, and Tony Levitino, and MacArthur Hill, and a number of uh, women who ran abortion clinics. And I would simply go have lunch with them and uh, spend time with them, and uh, they were usually on the way to conversion. 
and then we would help them through, and many of them uh, became very, very close friends. And um, a lot of them, uh, I'm a Catholic, and a lot of these uh, former abortionists that did come into the Catholic Church, I think uh, to a great extent because of the sacrament of penance, that there's a, a real certitude there that you, your sins are forgiven and uh, you're back into friendship with God. So it, it was just one of those things that happened. And then I, I would always wear a black hat because my own father had always worn a hat. When he died, I put on his coat and hat, and people said I looked like him, and I liked that because he was a good-looking man. I'm not. But it, we uh, uh, the black hat, and then in the summer I would go all white, and I'm six, four and a half, so I'm kind of, you know, big, and uh, uh, sort of aggressive. I always used a bullhorn so that people could understand, you know, within a crowd just what we were talking about, what we were doing at the clinics, and we would address the abortionists. But I was always opposed to any form of violence, and one of the chapters in my book is about why violence doesn't work, and it can only hurt the movement. And but I, I did know some of the people who participated in violence, and in fact, when they would be arrested, I would visit them in jail and let them know that uh, you know we didn't agree with what they did, but we understood their passion for the, saving the unborn. So there was a, a couple of different things that you tried. One of the things, and I don't remember if I, I heard this story from you personally or whether it was in one of your speeches or in your book, but... You at one point managed to make a playground look to the media as if it was haunted by the ghosts of children or if children had just been there. Tell us that story. Yes, this was a Saturday before Mother's Day, and we had a march, uh, not a very large group, but we had baby caskets. I had a a carpenter make 12 little baby caskets, uh, very well done with pearl handles and so on. And we marched with the caskets and... um, the American flag, of course, because we, we are loyal Americans. And we went into four abortion clinics carrying the caskets and uh, sang um, some kind of a song. And then uh, when we got to the end, uh, the, the cameras came out. The media were following us. And so I decided we would end up in a park, a children's park near the Water Tower in Chicago. And it just so happened that it started raining lightly, so there weren't any people in the park. So I ran ahead and started pushing all the swings and the carousels and the horses on on, on the uh, uh, metal uh, sort of wires and things and, and got the whole park moving. Everything was moving, and by the time the cameras came, uh, the reporter said, get a picture of this park. And so he did a long-range picture and then closed in, uh, showing everything moving, but nobody moving them. And she said, where are the children? Well, uh, the, the rain probably had kept most of the kids away, but I just said, they, they've died by, by abortion and only their ghosts are here. And that did make the evening news because it was Mother's Day and it was a, a very graphic uh, 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 image of what abortion is. There's nobody there. The toys are there and no children to play with them. So it was an emotional thing. And I, I, I had to compliment the reporter later 
on for letting that be the, the lead news story that night because it was a very graphic way of describing abortion. Speaking of, 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 of graphic, you are one of a handful of pro-lifers that have actually handled the bodies of aborted babies. Uh, you quite famously went through the through dumpsters with Dr. Monica Miller, who based most of her own book. Um, most of her own book is about about interacting with the victims of abortion and and right. re- reading it described in your book and in her book. And, and I've seen I've seen aborted babies on several occasions and it really does um, eliminate your ability to ever understand abortion as an abstraction or a political issue or even merely a, a moral issue ever again. It really does become something uh, that captures you and 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 something that you can never again understand as anything other than an injustice that is robbing us of, of millions of children. What was that like for you uh, the first time you, you came face-to-face with an actual victim of abortion? And what was it like handling so, so, so many of them as you did? Well, it was it was uh, very uh, emotionally disturbing. We, we got a call from a, a man who worked in an abortion clinic, and he was upset that the bodies were just thrown in the garbage. And he told us where they were thrown and what kind of a box they would be in. And so we started going uh, downtown at night and getting these boxes, and then we would take them to my garage, and we had a table, we had a pathologist there, and opened them up. And, of course, it was it was disheartening to see these tiny little people, and some were quite big. There were some that were late-term abortions, and there were twins, and we, so we, we photographed them, and Monica, Monica photographed hundreds of them, and uh, then we began finding them in a laboratory where they were being set to be checked, you know, for uh, to see if there was uh, any, anything maybe wrong with the woman. I don't know just what the point was. But then when they would be finished with them, they put them in a great big barrel and put it on the on the platform to be carted away to the junkyard. So we would uh, see get these barrels. And uh, I actually hid one of them in my state, put one of them in my kids' playhouse because we it was winter. We wanted to preserve them until we could go through and see, just get an idea. There were twins and so on. And Monica's book, Abandoned, is one of the best descriptions of the abortion find. And then they were discovering all over the country there was an abortion find in California. And we used a number of those pictures and blew them up. And I used one once at the uh, NCCB bishops uh, meeting here in Chicago. I uh, had it blown up in, in, in uh, the floor where they were having their meetings so that they had to see uh, how ugly abortion was. And the particular picture I used, the baby looked as though it was on a cross because the uh, paper towels had crisscrossed in such a way and the baby was right in the middle. And I asked UCCB, why have you abandoned me? Because the bishops weren't really uh, making abortion as much an issue that, as we thought they would and that it should have been doing. So we, 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 we tried not to be, you know, insulting or anything, but we wanted always to keep it before the public. And we would go around and put posters up on the lampposts in the loop in Chicago. And sometimes we would paint, uh, benches and 
uh, the, the, the bulletins at the train stations and the L stations, the elevated trains here in Chicago. And uh, our idea was to keep, never let abortion die. We'd even do chalking, and um, I had uh, some letter alphabets made out of uh, plastic, and we would write big messages on the sidewalk and then paint around the letters, and so people would see. Uh, and then we'd pick it at the clinics regularly. We had a routine. A group of people would meet and pray at the abortion clinics and try to talk to them. And so we were very busy all the time. And a lot of people, uh, we learned from them and they learned from us. And we had a group come in from St. Louis to show how they went into the clinic and sat and talked with the women. And we had a diagram. We'd get diagrams of the clinics in Chicago so we'd know where to go. And it was all pretty well worked out. And, of course, we had to pay a price for that. I was sued as a racketeer. And I had to put my home up for collateral, and so we they didn't even own my home for a number of years because I couldn't pay. Uh, they wanted a, a quarter of a million dollar bond, so that went on for uh, a number of years, about 17 years. We went back to the Supreme Court three times, which is uh, I think a, a first a historical first. But uh, Scheidler now versus Scheidler, and then Scheidler versus now went. We finally sued them, and um, we won that case. So, but it was a racketeer case, and so when when I was exonerated, I still kind of liked the title of being a racketeer for life, um, because you know it's um, triple damages and all that, and it was it was a fake charge, but it. Um, it was noteworthy, lasting 23 years, and through that time we were in court back and forth and spent a lot of money. And in uh, in winning it, we we made it uh, impossible for the abortionists to use that particular law against pro-lifers, although they, they try other things. What was the logic behind uh, charging you as a racketeer? Well, you know, at first they charged me as violating the Sherman-Clayton antitrust laws, and we spent a year in court on that, and it went nowhere. There was no way they could show that I had violated the antitrust laws, and so they amended it to racketeering, and we didn't think that they could use racketeering laws against a social movement, because we don't make money, and racketeers, you know, have a middlemen and so on and and they um they actually uh gross a lot of money through criminal activity usually with a middleman but uh we went to the supreme court and challenged the court on on that charge that we could not be found uh, you know they could not use racketeering against us but the court uh approved i think it was seven to uh or eight to one that we were, they could use the racketeering. Now that was unanimous, where they could use racketeering, and so that that was the case then. And they would bring in uh, uh, what we call Miss Hollywood and all kinds of uh, false witnesses that would lie about what we did and how we hurt people, and, and about hit them with signs and so on. And uh, we even had one one of their witnesses. We called her Miss Hollywood because she was so good, so so impressive. And it's, it's hard to 
say, you know, show that you didn't do something unless you have a film of it. And we did have, we found later on some of these charges they'd made against us and uh, given a location and a clinic and a client, so they're all false. But uh, the jury ruled unanimously against us, and then that's where we had to go back for an appeal. The appeal, uh, we won in the Supreme Court, came back to the lower court, and the lower court would not accept it. They said the three predicate acts had been omitted, and so we had to go back for a third time to the Supreme Court. And in that decision, it was unanimous that we were not bracketeers, and we finally had a settlement with NOW, National Organization for Women, that had brought the charges. Speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, you actually once had a chance to meet the man who authored Roe v. Wade, didn't you? Uh, let's see. Roe v. Wade was... Uh, Harry Blackman. Harry Blackman. I mean, I did meet Blackman, yes. Blackman came to Chicago. He's uh, from this area. And he came up here to give a talk. And so we got into the reception line and... Um, I said, Justice Blackman, you know, what you've done is is so grievous. We see these women and how they suffer after the abortion and so on. And I said, um, I just want you to know that we're praying for you, and uh, but you made a, a terrible mistake in in uh, writing a decision um, uh, permitting abortion, which is against everything this country stands for. And then he didn't answer me. He went on to the uh, next person where well, we had a whole row of people that we had gotten in. We were dressed up and we were uh, got tickets to the banquet. Somebody gave them to us. So after about the third um, person, um, Pat Truman, uh, who now works uh, against the pornography, uh, he uh, finally, Blackman, discontinued the reception line. And, but we had a table right in front of his um, speaker stand, and he was very careful not to even bring up the issue of abortion. And then I met Brennan and different ones of the, of the Supreme Court that had been involved. And it's, it's just short visits, but just to let them know that we were going to fight abortion until it, it was no longer the law of the land. Because it violates everything we stand for. You know, we, we say that um, all men are created equal and they're endowed with the right to life. And that's, uh, we're or all people whenever we exist, whatever form. And so the unborn had been protected. There'd been laws against abortion for almost all the states. And um, then the Supreme Court found uh, in, in the penumbra some kind of a right to um, abortion, and it's not there. So it has to fall. Even Sandra Day O'Connor has said that it's on a collision course with itself, and um, Rehnquist, I believe it was, or White, that said that it was a cut from whole cloth. It was a, a, a constructed law that doesn't exist. And if we can simply, now that we're getting a Supreme Court, maybe that would uh, rule favorably, to overturn Roe v. Wade, and I think that will happen um, probably in the next year or two. When you were running Pro-Life Action League back in the 80s, Pro-Life leaders were actually invited to the White House to meet with Ronald Reagan, weren't they? Yes. 
What was that? What was that like? It was very, uh, very, very impressive because Reagan was dynamic and, uh, you know, an extremely friendly person. And when he came into the room, it just electrified everybody. And I fortunately was sitting straight across from him and had a bottle of his jelly beans that were so popular, those tiny little beans. And, of course, he had a bar, a jar of them, but everybody took theirs from me because... <laughs> and, um, we shook hands and, and uh, had a nice little conversation, and he told us how dedicated he was to the pro-life effort. And, of course, he wrote a book, you know, on uh, pro-life, and uh, he was very easy to work with. Uh, we didn't get everything we wanted, but he appointed, you know, he was, he was on our side all the way. And, uh, in fact, I sent him a, when they, when they set up his museum, I sent a the young years, a coin set from 1911, his birth year, with a baby picture of him that I'd gotten from an article in a magazine. And uh, it's on display, or at least it was last time I was there, at the Reagan Presidential Museum. So looking back over, you know, the decades you spent in the pro-life movement, you've you've met so many people, you've seen so many things, you've been part of the movement from almost its very beginning all the way until now. So what would be your greatest disappointments throughout your career? And then after that, what would what would be the greatest victories, the things that were most encouraging, most satisfying? Well, disappointment was in uh, people that we thought were pro-life and and turned out to be uh, unhelpful. And that would be all all through your um, mostly political uh, leaders and and religious leaders. You see so many of the um, mainline churches support abortion uh, and actually have a religious coalition for abortion rights. That's been a real uh, hard one for me to find people that believe in God and believe in many of the things that the, the Catholic Church teaches, and yet to have no respect for the unborn. Uh, when it's obvious there's science and, and everything else that it is a human being with the right to life, and they, so many churches have gone against that. But, uh, the highlights have been the, the people that I've met who are totally dedicated, who do so much more than, than I could ever do, that have uh, come out, uh, people like uh, David Delighton and Lila Rose and David B. Wright and young people that are taking over the movement now. And uh, the old people that I met that are retiring, I knew Father Paul Marx very well. He had gotten into the movement long before Roe v. Wade and used to go to the National Abortion Federation conventions as a member. At least uh, he would call himself Dr. Marx and would not wear his collar. And he learned a great deal about the uh, coming of abortion as a national issue. And I I knew the Wilkies real well, and Judy and, and Paul Brown, and just on down the line. And Frankie Schaefer wrote the foreword to my first book, Closed, 99 Ways to Stop Abortion. And so it um, it has been my life. I I didn't think much about abortion when I was young. We'd hardly ever heard about it. We knew it was wrong. And I remember the movie Alfie, where the um, main character has his uh, girlfriend aborted, and he 
looks at the baby in the sink after the abortion and says, I just committed a murder. And um, the poor little thing, you know, his, his own child has been killed and he's paid for the killing. And that was before Roe v. Wade. We didn't hear much about abortion in those days, but it's become now such a major issue that the parties are divided over it, and that's really one of the main reasons that the Supreme Court, when whenever a candidate is put up for a hearing, they uh, the, the the Democrats now, which have abortion strongly in their platform, uh, are against anyone who would overturn Roe v. Wade, and um, we we hope that with uh, Trump in office, he gets another chance or two to appoint uh, more judges so that Roe v. Wade will be overturned, which wouldn't solve the problem completely because there would still be it would go back to the states, and you'd always have New York and California and Illinois as uh, abortion centers where people would would still get legal abortions uh, statewide. So it's it's a, a really a one-on-one conversion that has to take place, and that's why we go to the clinics and talk to the women and uh, try every way we can, run ads and so on, that people will give us a call, and we've been able to talk women out of abortion over the phone or at the clinics, and uh, you save a life, you save a world. So we... Um, it just had to be, you know our most precious value in the whole in the whole of creation is the human being made in the image and likeness of God with an eternal destiny, and we want that eternal destiny to be with God. And of course, God's never made very clear, "Thou shalt not kill." Abortion is violating the fifth commandment, and so we therefore uh, are trying. Uh, and, and most pro-lifers are pretty much religious. We've had atheists for life, but that's not a very big group. But we're mostly religious in the sense that we believe God has a purpose for us, and that is to spend eternity with him. And you're not going to do that by killing off uh, his helpless children. One of the things I really wanted to ask you is, you would know this better than anybody, because like I said, you're one of the few pro-lifers who was there from the beginning. Um all the way until the present day. And there's so many pro-lifers that they burnt out, uh, they flamed out, uh, whether it be, you know, because of the things that happened during the days of Operation Rescue, uh, because of the disappointments, like when when, uh, Roe v. Wade was somewhat hollowed out but still upheld by a court that many thought would finally overturn it in the early 90s. Um, or if it's yeah. just the, the the dealing with death and life and death situations and the horror of what abortion is day in, day out. Um, I have only been in the movement for a decade, and I can list dozens of people who came in full of passion and then have left. And I know that you could probably list hundreds, if not even more. So what kept you going through all of these decades uh, when so many others uh, have come and gone? Well, I've I've had the good fortune of having good health. I'm 91 now, and I still have, you know, go around, give talks, and travel. I was out in Maui this year, and uh, San Francisco, March for Life, and Washington, and so on. I still give talks and um, writing, and for the most part, I've had good health. And uh, 
it's such an important issue to me. I just can't let it go. I have seen people, a lot of people have dropped out because of health reasons. Um, there was Bob Newman in Pittsburgh, who was one of the most uh, activists um, in, in having truth tours and so on. Well, he's he's got macular de- degeneration now, and he can't hardly see, so he's had to pull back. And many, many people lose their health or die, uh, really. <laughs> and uh, I've been very fortunate in keeping good health and still being able to keep an office going and stay in touch with the pro-life movement. We had two meetings here yesterday uh, on legislation that we're going to try to get passed in Illinois, and we have uh, March for Life, and we have uh, Students for Life, and so on. So it's uh, it's an issue that it, it won't go away until people begin to appreciate the value of human life. And so, you know, many people don't even value their own lives. Uh, they now have assisted suicide coming. And with all the crazy things that have followed from, um, you know, abandoning God's laws, we have uh, gay marriage, which, of course, is a non-entity, and we have gender uh, selection. You can turn into a boy and, or be a girl or whatever you want, and, and they're actually... Uh, punishing uh, teachers sometimes for not calling a boy by a girl's name when the boy has decided he's a, he's no longer a boy. It's a crazy society, and uh, it, it, at times you wonder, you know, if we're losing it. But um, there are still very, very many good people, and a lot of them, even if they drop out of the movement, they're still very much involved in helping to support it and in keeping uh, coming to certain events. We're having a big march here in Chicago in January, and we'll have a good turnout, and the the Cardinal will speak, and uh, we'll uh, review, you know, what what, where we stand now and the gains that we've made, because abortion is now, I think, understood better than uh, ever, certainly at the time where we laid People know now what abortion is and that it's wrong. And even the ones that support it are not happy with it. And we, as I say, we've had many, many uh, meetings with former abortionists and have made films, meet the abortion providers, abortion the inside story. Uh, we've had uh, meetings with the clergy on abortion and then um, try to stay in touch with all the pro-life activists and uh, I, the pro-life vote is very, very strong in this country, much stronger than other countries. And I was very disappointed with Ireland when they got rid of that um, um, amendment, eight that, that, that was uh, prohibited abortion in Ireland. I traveled in Ireland a lot and spoken there, and uh, I'm just happy that Northern Ireland is still abortion-free. But most of Europe has uh, has collapsed except Poland and some uh, and uh, and African countries have uh, have stayed pro-life many of them but uh, it you know it's uh, a battle that will go on um, forever as long as evil exists and is a battle I have to stay in until I can't work anymore or when I die what message do you have then to uh, not only the all the young people joining the pro-life movement, but to those uh, who just might need a bit of encouragement? 
Well, I would just say, think of your own life. Think of the fact that uh, your mother and father allowed you to live. They loved you. And the the beauty that God has given us and the, the powers he's given us, just the power to see and to to speak and sing and enjoy nature and enjoy talents that people have. Uh, it's so wonderful. Uh, I, I did just watch the movie recently, The Wonderful Life, you know, with uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, who would think he was contemplating suicide, and his angel shows him what the world would be like, have been like without him. Uh, that whether you <clears throat> whether intend to or, or or not, you're going to do a lot of good with your life and help other people, and hopefully spend eternity with God. And uh, so I, uh, I just think the advice is, uh, you're glad you're alive. Uh, try to keep somebody else alive and let them live out the, the plan that God has for them. Uh, that, that's what it's all about. You know, the whole universe is not worth a single uh, fertilized egg at the very moment of fertilization. That's of more importance to God because it has an eternal soul that is destined to spend eternity worshiping God. And that basically is what it comes down to. We're not made for this world. We're made for eternity. And uh, every every life counts enormously. The value of a human life is inestimable. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Hey, it was fun. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation with Joe Scheidler, the godfather of Pro-Life Direct Action and the founder of the Pro-Life Action League. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and if you want to see others like it and a variety of news articles, please head over to LifeSiteNews.com. We really appreciate you joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.